reading from the book of Joshua, chapter 24, starting with verse 1. Then Joshua gathered all the tribes of Israel to Shechem, and summoned the elders, the heads, the judges, and the officers of Israel, and they presented themselves before God. And Joshua said to all the people, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Long ago your ancestors, Terah and his sons Abraham and Nahor, lived beyond the Euphrates and served other gods. Then I took your father Abraham from beyond the river and led him through all the land of Canaan and made his offspring many. Now therefore, revere the Lord and serve him in sincerity and in faithfulness. Put away the gods that your ancestors served beyond the river and in Egypt and serve the Lord. Now if you are unwilling to serve the Lord, choose this day whom you will serve whether the gods your ancestors served in the region beyond the river or the gods the Amorites in whose land you are living. But as for me and my household, we will serve the Lord. Then the people answered, Far be it from us that we would forsake. We should forsake the Lord to serve other gods. For it is the Lord our God who brought us and our ancestors up from the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery, and who did those great signs in our sight. He protected us all along the way that we went and among all the peoples through whom he pa- we passed. And the Lord drove us out before us all the peoples, the Amorites who lived in the land. Therefore, we also will so- serve the Lord, for he is our God. But Joshua said to the people, You cannot serve the Lord, for he is a holy God. He is a jealous God. He will not forgive your transgressions or your sins. If you forsake the Lord and serve foreign gods, then he will turn and do you harm and consume you, after having done you good. And the people said to Joshua, No, we will serve the Lord. Then Joshua said to the people, You are witnesses against yourselves that you have chosen the Lord to serve him. And they said, We are witnesses. He said, Then put away the foreign gods that are among you, and incline your hearts to the Lord, the God of Israel. The people said to Joshua, The Lord our God we will serve, and him we will obey. So Joshua made a covenant with the people that day and made statues and ordinances for them at Shechem. The word of the Lord. Speak to God. A reading from Paul's first letter to the Thessalonians, chapter 4, starting with verse 13. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers and sisters, about those who have died so that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have died. For this we declare to you by the word of the Lord that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will by no means precede those who have died. For the Lord himself With a cry of command, with the archangel's call, and with the sound of God's trumpet, will descend from heaven, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up in the clouds together with them to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will be with the Lord forever. Therefore, encourage one another with these words, the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God reading from the Holy Gospel according to Matthew. Glory to you, Lord Christ. 
Jesus told his disciples this parable. The kingdom of heaven will be like ten virgins who took their lamps and went out to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish and five were wise. The foolish ones, when taking their lamps, brought no oil with them. But the wise brought flasks of oil with their lamps. Since the bridegroom was long delayed, they all became drowsy and fell asleep. At midnight there was a cry, Behold, the groom, come out to meet him. Then all those virgins got up and trimmed their lamps. The foolish ones said to the wise, Give us some of your oil, for our lamps are going out. But the wise ones replied, No, there may not be enough for us and you. Go instead to the merchants and buy some for yourselves. While they went off to buy it, the bridegroom came, and those who were ready went into the wedding feast with him. Then the door was locked. Afterwards, the other virgins came and said, Lord, Lord, open the door for us. But he said in reply, Amen, I say to you, I do not know you. Therefore, stay awake, for you know neither the day nor the hour. The Gospel of the Lord. It's good to be with you all this morning. It's a special day for me, um, more ways than one, and that I have... um, Ashley's dad and uh, Kelly as well, and then I have my parents, um, Brent and Janice Sharp, are here also. So it's a really special day for me to have so much family. They're all in town to uh, celebrate Lucy. Lucy is in a play. She's actually playing one of the orphans in Annie, and so she's been having a lot of fun with that, and we've really enjoyed it and been really proud of her, and it's cool to have the whole family in town. Uh, But it's good to have all of you, our family, together today. Uh, there, as we read these scriptural stories this morning, I mean, we have some tricky ones today. <laughs> we always have some tricky ones, but we had some today that we kind of go, wait, what's, what's going on here? What's, what's happening? And in fact, there are a bunch of different ways to read the Bible, right? Like some ways to read the Bible are beautiful and good and true, and some are shallow and can be even harmful. Um, There's one way of reading a scriptural story that centers on me doing the best that I can to live the best life that I can, to achieve as much as I can, to fix the world myself, to fix myself myself. There's a way to read the Bible that's focused on just building the best life for me possible, being the most moral person, right? Making, not making any mistakes and trying not to mess up other people in the process. That's one way to just read the Bible. And that's often how many of us have been taught to approach the Bible. We're looking for steps for success. We're looking for ways to boost what we need to accomplish, what we need to accomplish. But I would suggest that's not the most faithful way to read the scriptural story. The story of Jesus is good news. And it's better news than any kind of self-help or self-actualization. So today I want to suggest in our readings that the goodness and grace of God undergirds the entire scriptural story. And the words of scripture point us away from our own self-sufficiency and back to him. Our Old Testament reading is one of those that we often read through a moral, personal achievement lens. So it's a warning from God through Joshua to God's people, don't turn to idols. That's the warning. And God starts by reminding them of their own story. He says, long ago, your ancestors were idolaters. They worshipped pagan gods. So in other words, there was a time where God's people were not God's people. (laughs) They were far away. They were pagans. He was saying they were foreigners. They worshipped false gods. They were outsiders. In fact, their father Abraham began as an outsider. But then there's two words that everything hinges on. 
So he says that this is how you were. And then he says, but I, but I, the Lord himself took Abraham from the land and changed things. He changed everything. God took the initiative. Before God's people are ever called to do anything, God plucked up Abraham. God shows them. Before they could accomplish anything, God acted. Joshua goes on to describe all the ways that God took care of them. We don't see this in our reading this morning, but he called Abraham. He sent Moses and Aaron. He brought them out of the land, and then he fought many battles on their behalf. Only then, only after recounting all that God has done, Joshua says, now choose. Choose. He says, now, if you're unwilling to serve the Lord, and then verse 15 is really famous, choose this day whom you will serve. Have you heard that before? Choose this day whom you will serve. And then he says, whether the gods your ancestors served in the region beyond the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you are living. And then this other part is famous too. But as for me and my household, we will serve the Lord. They're given a choice. God's people are always given a choice whether or not to serve God. God's choosing of them doesn't make them robots. They're not forced to choose God. But out of God's love, and this is beautiful, God makes the choice obvious. (laughs) Okay, so here's what I've done for you. Here's the ways that I've called you. Here's the people you're called to be. Or... There's these other ones out there. (laughs) You can choose them too. And we know from the story that Abraham did choose. He broke ties with the land he was from and from the pagan gods. And then there's all these choices all throughout the Bible, all throughout the Old Testament. I'm studying the book of Ruth right now for another project. And it is so amazing that this woman from Moab, outside of the story of Israel, commits herself to her mother-in-law, leaving behind her land, her language, her culture, and her gods, and clinging to the one true God by faith. But before they do any choosing, they're chosen. God calls to the world first. We don't act first. God acts first. And we're invited to join in. Both are true. And that interplay is important because without God's calling, without God's initiative, nothing would be possible. And the human decision to be part of that thing or another thing, or to put it more accurately, to surrender oneself to the true thing, that's what it is, or to chase after false things. So verse 15 is kind of sarcastic. It's Joshua saying, okay, if you really want to turn on the God who delivered you of Egypt, you got to choose now. You get to pick either the gods of your ancestors or the gods of the Amorites where you live now. So you can choose one of those two if you want, if you're not going to choose God. It's a choice, but it's not much of a choice. I was trying to think of what this might be like saying today. Like, okay, so choose the God who delivered you, or what are are your other choices? If we're not going to be faithful to God, who are we going to be faithful to? Well, in the ancient world, the reason why people turned to pagan gods was for security, for fertility, and for prosperity. They believed that if they did certain things right to appease the foreign gods, then they would get those things in their life. So today it might be like saying, choose your God. Do you want to worship security or do you want to worship approval? Which one of those do you want to choose? you got to choose one of them. So in our world, we can worship security. And there's a lot we can do in our lives to try to keep ourselves secure these days. 
can have enough investments and money in the bank to where you try to prevent yourself from any possible disaster. You can have the best alarm system in your home possible. You can have that ring doorbell where you see every, every person that comes up and you know exactly who's there at the door. Everything's double and triple locked. None of those are bad ideas, bad things. But there's also a way of idolizing security where you completely eliminate all risk or discomfort from your life. Keeping other people out of your life who aren't like you. Don't open up your lives to new people because the risk of hurt is too risky. And then you can live a life of fear if security becomes your idol. And all of us have found at one time or another that security will fail us. That life is risky. That things happen outside of our control. In fact, that's often when good things happen too. Some of the best things happen outside of our control. But messy things, dark things happen too. We have to trust in something greater than our own ability to control our security, but to be secure. Or we could worship the God of approval. You could curate your life so that everybody likes you. <laughs> Never say no to anybody, right? You make sure everything in your life looks enviable to everybody else. You can do all the epic things in life and post them all on Instagram, and people will praise you for it. But we all know there will always be people who don't like you, <laughs> and you can't control that. And a life that idolizes approval will also prevent you from being who you truly are because you're just trying to keep up with everybody else. We have to trust in something deeper than approval. And you could even think about how chasing security and approval are two different things, right? Like you can't be completely secure and get everybody to like you. So you choose kind of one of those two things, one of those two paths. But we, we all know that both of those and all the false things are just that. They're false. They're hollow. And then the verse ends with this equally familiar but for me and my household, we will serve the Lord. If you grew up Christian, you probably saw that over someone's kitchen archway somewhere, right? The point is there is only one in whom we can trust, right? The people say to Joshua, yeah, we're going to trust God. But it's interesting, Joshua's response. I think if I was Joshua, I would go, yay, good. That's the right choice. And he says, no, you're not going to really do that. You're not going to he immediately expresses doubt. Why? And he says, because God is holy. Now that freaks us out a little bit when we hear that word holy, but the word holy means God's different. So God's different from security or status. Why? Because God's real. He's true. So we don't play games with God. We don't go back and forth to God whenever we need something from him because that's not how God works. God is God. <laughs> We're in relationship with God. It's not a casual relationship. And then Joshua also says God is passionate or jealous. Sometimes we hear that word jealous and we turn it negative. But one translation is just God is passionate. God feels things strongly for you. God loves you. That's the opposite of a God who would be dispassionate, uncaring about his children and the choices they take. God really loves us. And that means that God is grieved when we turn to things that are harmful for us or shallow for us. The call here is for God's people, remember who you are. Remember your identity. We talked about that last week with uh, baptism. Those of you who weren't here, I went around with water and a tree branch, and I reminded everybody of their baptism, of who they are with a sprinkle of water. 
You have been baptized. You are part of the people of God. That is your identity, nothing else. We were foreigners serving other gods, and we didn't do anything. It wasn't our behavior or disposition or merit that allowed us to be part of the people of God. But by God's grace, we are part of the family of God. So the calling here in Joshua can be summarized, you are God's people. Now live that way. This leads us to our gospel reading, which is about a wedding, which is a joyous occasion. Ten bridesmaids take their lamps to meet the bridegroom. We're told that five were foolish and five were wise. And right away when they hear foolish and wise, ancient peoples would have heard that this was a wisdom parable. There was a lesson to be learned here. The bridegroom takes a while and they fall asleep and then the bridegroom arrives at midnight. The wise ones have oil in their lamps for their lamps. The foolish ones don't. The wise ones find they're prepared to go into the banquet with the bridegroom. The foolish ones don't get to go. Well, if we look at this parable in the context of all of Jesus' parables, this is a parable about him, about his coming into the world. He is the bridegroom. Jesus has already described himself as the bridegroom. And in a parable before this, he speaks of the kingdom being like a marriage feast. Jesus is the bridegroom, and throughout his ministry, he's been showing up, arriving on the scene. And Jesus is particularly noticing and calling out that some of the religious leaders of the day have built an entire system to make themselves feel comfortable about their place in the kingdom of God. And they've created this system where certain people are in and certain people are out. And they've, they've taken God's law and interpreted it in such a way that it excludes the sinful and the sick and the outcasts. And what they've done all along is they've done that and then they've gone, we're the ones prepared. We're the ones ready for the Messiah because we've made ourselves separate and we've created this system. And so we're the wise ones, but in fact, they're the foolish ones. Jesus says, not so fast. Maybe you aren't the ones who, you are the ones who aren't ready. And this is a warning that all of us need to hear. Now, again, we can hear this in a moralistic way. I used to hear these kind of stories as, the, as a kid about um, Jesus coming back or Jesus returning, and they would freak me out. Maybe they did that with you too. Gosh, I don't want to be the, one of those people that, doesn't get, that gets left out of the banquet, out of the wedding feast. What is this oil? How do I get more of it, right? I always tended to think of this passage in terms of the future, end of the world judgment. And yes, God's judgment is scary news for those who are sure of themselves, the gatekeepers who keep people out. But think about how everyday faithful marginalized folks have heard this story. Mary, John the Baptist, the disciples, Think about those who have been left out altogether, tax collectors, sinners, and the lepers. Jesus says, those of you who are comfortable, you shouldn't be so comfortable. The bridegroom is here now. The wedding feast is happening. Everything that's been leading up to this moment is here, and you're not prepared. And yes, judgment is bad news because it's challenging and afflicting to those who are comfortable, but judgment's also good news because it's comforting to the afflicted. Those who are benefiting from a dark world are afraid of the light, but those who are suffering in a dark world always yearn for the light. I think we live in a world today where 
We talk so much about the longing for justice, for things right, for righteousness, for things to be restored. And the message of the church has always been, he is coming to make things right. And that's good news. So what is this oil that Jesus is talking about? Well, the consensus throughout church history is we have no idea, okay? That's the technical um, summary. But somehow it represents a life prepared for and oriented towards the kingdom of God. In the Old Testament, there's a lot of talk, and we just heard it in Joshua, about two paths, two directions. You can take this path or this path. In the New Testament, though, the language shifts. Instead of two paths, there's two kingdoms or two realities, two ways of being pointed or oriented in the world. One scholar, Brad Jursak, says that we could say that this oil is mercy. In a world where the most comfortable have excluded and oppressed, Jesus is saying, do you have mercy? Because mercy is what will prepare you for my arrival. But I want to be careful with that because we can think of mercy as this, oh gosh, I got to be more merciful. But before someone can actually be merciful and show mercy to others, they have to understand mercy for themselves. Experience that for themselves. The comfortable lacked mercy, but mercy is central to the heart of God. All right, so I think this parable could be heard in at least three ways, okay? Let me, I'll summarize these quickly. First, Jesus came in a specific place and time. The bridegroom found that many of God's people were not ready for him. They weren't alert. They had turned to idols like national pride and violence and exclusion through ritual purity. Into that world, Jesus brought a different way of being, a new kingdom, a new reality. But really what he was doing is just reminding them of who God's people have always been called to be in the first place. But we can't leave it in the first century, okay? So that's the first century. Second, as the bridegroom has come close to us, we often recognize that we're not pointed towards his kingdom. There are parts in our life that are not oriented in the way of God. We're still not alert. We've often become numbed and it's caused us to relax. We've become lulled by the world of consumerism where everything's about buying and selling. We get lulled by the divisions of our world, feeling like everything is about picking a camp and choosing that as our final hope. We have surrendered the ways of power in our world. And in that moment, the bridegroom arrives. So we, we ask ourselves, it's an opportunity. Where are we pointed? Where are the places in our lives that are out of step? And then there's that third way of viewing the, the story. Christ has come. Christ is present. And there will be one, one day where we will see him in fullness, where Christ will return. So this preparation is a sobering thing as we anticipate there will be a day when things will be right and we get to be part of that now. That's the expectation we lean into during Advent, which begins in just a few weeks. Christians are an anticipation people, a people who seek to live God's kingdom here and now. But of course, waiting is difficult. Think about being at this wedding that Jesus describes. You're going, where is this guy? Where's this bridegroom? You're waiting. And at first, when you go to a wedding, everybody's excited to see each other, right? They're, they're talking, they're catching up, they're anticipating the return. They're thinking about the ceremony. It's going to be so beautiful. It's going to be so wonderful. And then anticipation gives way to boredom. It becomes tedious. You can imagine these young women asking, so what do you guys want to do now while we're waiting? And then darkness falls. And so does fear. Is he going to show up? Is he ever going to show up? It's dark now. 
Maybe he abandoned the wedding altogether. Maybe he's run away. And then so long goes by that everybody gets sleepy because the emotions of anticipation and boredom and fear are all exhausting. So everybody falls asleep. You can see how Jesus is describing the waiting of the church. Many of us are sitting here in our lives. We experience it every day. And then we look at the news and we see, and we're longing, Lord, come and make things right. Are you ever going to do it? Are you ever going to show up? It's dark now. Where are you? And Christians are those people that are those watch people (laughs) that sit and wait. He is coming. We've got the oil here and we're keeping it lit because he's going to return. Finally, someone shouts, he's coming. And everyone trims their lamp. Everybody is ready, except for the bridesmaids who have run out of order uh, of oil. I don't think this reading is about heaven and hell. Some people have said that. I believe it's about openness to what God is doing in the world versus a posture that is, is focused on me or separation. A wedding is this celebration. And like with the rest of Jesus' parables, we're called to live that new kingdom but it requires trusting, letting go of the other ways that I seek to run my life, the distractions from our anticipation of him. And we do this even in times where we do not see him. The good news is this preparation is never something we do alone. The Holy Spirit prepares us. Betty, my almost two-year-old, her favorite thing in the entire world right now is go outside. She just wants to be outside all the time. And if, I, if she's ever in a bad mood or if I just you know, want to change direction for her, if I just say, do you want to go outside? She drops everything that she's doing, no matter how fascinating it is. I help her then put on her shoes. She can't do that by herself. I tell her, it's almost time. It's almost time. Then I say, let's go. In a not so dissimilar way, the Holy Spirit prepares us for Christ's second coming. Let's go. It's almost time. Notice that all the bridesmaids fall asleep. So the foolish ones and the wise ones. Because that's just part of the exhaustion of waiting. So listen, if you're here and you feel like you've fallen asleep, you're exhausted, you've been wrestling with your faith and you go, I'm not quite as alert as I once was. Here today, that's part of it. It's okay. That's part of it. Don't be ashamed. And now here today, wake up. (laughs) The question is not their alertness, but their preparedness. And there will be times where all of us catch ourselves napping. This isn't about moral achievement or even moral purity. It's about orientation towards this self-giving kingdom that is only led by the Holy Spirit. The oil in the lamps is not something you earn. It's something you receive. The arrival of the bridegroom is the most glorious event and it's good news for those who trust him, who anticipate him. The arrival of the bridegroom allows us to ask ourselves, am I pointed towards this banquet, towards the kingdom of God? Or am I trying to run my own life through security or approval or something else? Am I falling for things and trusting in things that just leave me empty? One of the ways that we check ourselves, and we have to be really careful about this because it can turn into that kind of moralism I was talking about. One of the ways we check this, kind of a check engine light for our hearts, is how we treat one another. How am I treating others? 
There's going to be times where you may catch yourself grasping at things instead of being open-handed with others. Pushing your way through life instead of walking arm-in-arm with your neighbor. It's in those times we can be reminded, wait, this banquet's different. We're called to a better kind of life. So yes, this story's a warning, but it's a joyful proclamation. There are two key words at the end of this that I think are central to all of it. It's where it says, they went with him, with him. That's the point of the story. We're invited to go with him. Invited to the wedding banquet. As I end here, these stories of preparation spark alertness, and they should. Perhaps at times, they even give us grave concern for our lives. But they should never lead us to terror. God is good, full stop. If you don't hear anything else when you come here on Sunday mornings, God is good. God loves you. God is good all the way through. It's not God is good and also this, or God is good but. No, God is good all the way through. The stories allow us recalibration, opportunity for confession, awareness of the disorder of our lives and in the world. And part of that, they offer us the opportunity for true repentance, to turn to the one in whom there is true healing. You don't have to trust in security, approval, status, wealth, or anything else. The bridegroom is coming and has now come. And this all begins with God, the one who has called us, chosen us, and will be faithful to see things through. So no matter who you're, what you're wrestling with today, I hope you hear the good news. May we know the God who first plucked Abraham from a faraway land and his pagan idols and who does the same thing with us. May we know we're part of a family and a story of God's faithfulness even in the midst of our unfaithfulness. May we await his coming with anticipation of his joyous return. May we know that the Spirit prepares us even as we inevitably fall asleep. May we be assured of the good news that we get to be with him. Amen.